KWVA, Eugene. self-indulgent episode of the Sunday Morning Hangover. I'm your host, the Reverend Mark Time. It's a very spooky, foggy morning here in Eugene. So appropriately, I am uh, going to take you into the depths of the underworld. And it's not going to be a very upbeat show, although there will be some upbeat tunes today. It's an itch I have to scratch. Two hours of the music, soundtrack words, and feelings of film director David Lynch. And this is something I did a long time ago, but I recently acquired the David Lynch audio CDs, Catching the Big Fish. You'll be hearing excerpts from that as well as excerpts from the soundtrack of different movies such as Eraserhead, Lost Highway, Mulholland Drive, Inland Empire, TV shows such as Twin Peaks, productions such as Industrial Symphony, music by Julie Cruz, Brian Eno, Nine Inch Nails, and a number of other artists that have appeared in David Lynch movies. So, appropriately, as we slide into the spookiness and the coldness, of wintertime, kick back, grab that cup of hot coffee, damn fine coffee, and sit back and listen to another self-indulgent itch I have to scratch, the Sunday morning hangover. the saying, the world is as you are, and I think films are as you are. That's why, although the frames of a film are always the same, the same number, in the same sequence, and with the same sounds, every screening is different. The difference is sometimes subtle, but it's there. It depends on the audience. There's a circle that goes from the audience to the film and back. Each person is looking and thinking and feeling and coming up with their own sense of things, and it's probably different from what I fell in love with. So you don't know how it's going to hit people, but if you thought about how it's going to hit people, or if it's going to hurt someone, or if it's going to do this or do that, then you'd have to stop making films. 
You just do these things that you fall in love with, and you never know what's going to happen. Eraserhead. Eraserhead is my most spiritual movie. No one understands when I say that, but it is. 
Eraserhead was growing in a certain way, and I didn't know what it meant. I was looking for a key to unlock what these sequences were saying. Of course, I understood some of it, but I didn't know the thing that just pulled it all together, and it was a struggle. So I got out my Bible and started reading, and one day I read a sentence, and I closed the Bible, because that was it. That was it. And then I saw the thing as a whole, and it fulfilled this vision for me 100%. I don't think I'll ever say what that sentence was. to go to Bob's Big Boy restaurant just about every day from the mid-70s until the early 80s. I'd have a milkshake and sit and think. There's a safety in thinking in a diner. You can have your coffee or your milkshake and you can go off into strange dark areas and always come back to the safety of the diner.
are listening to music from a movie called The Elephant Man, directed by David Lynch. He got that job by directing and producing over a period of five years his first full-length feature, Eraserhead. We are playing here on the Sunday Morning Hangover with yours truly, the Reverend Mark Time, two hours of the music and words of David Lynch from David Lynch's audio book, Catching the Big Fish. David Lynch, uh, originally from the Northwest, bumped around, went to Philadelphia, actually had to sell the Wall Street Journal for a while to make it through his first movie. Going to be playing little vignettes by him, describing his movie making, and excerpts from soundtracks of his movies. Music. I was listening to the radio one day when I was working on The Elephant Man, and I heard Samuel Barber's Adagio for Strings. I fell in love with this piece for the last scene of the film. I asked Jonathan Sanger, the producer, to get it, and he came back with nine different records. I listened to them, and I said, no, that's not what I heard at all. All nine were completely wrong. So we went out and bought more. Finally, I heard Andre Previn's version, and I said, that's it. It was composed of the same notes as the others, of course, but it was the way he did it. The music has to marry with the picture and enhance it. You can't just lob something in and think it's going to work, even if it's one of your all-time favorite songs. That piece of music may have nothing to do with the scene. When it marries, you can feel it. The thing jumps. A whole is greater than the sum of the parts kind of thing can happen. Cut. I love the French. They're the biggest film buffs and protectors of cinema in the world. They really look out for the filmmaker and the rights of the filmmaker, and they believe in Final Cut. I've been very lucky that I've been in with some French companies that have backed me. But it wasn't always that way. When I made Dune, I didn't have Final Cut. It was a huge, huge sadness because I felt I had sold out, and on top of that, the film was a failure at the box office. If you do what you believe in and have a failure, that's one thing. You can still live with yourself. But if you don't, it's like dying twice. It's very, very painful. 
it's totally absurd for filmmakers not to be able to make films the way they want to make them, but in this business it's very common. I came from painting, and a painter has none of those worries. A painter paints a painting. No one comes in and says, you've got to change that blue. It's a joke to think that a film is going to mean anything if somebody else fiddles with it. If they give you the right to make the film, they owe you the right to make it the way you think it should be. The filmmaker should decide on every single element, every single word, every single sound, every single thing going down that highway through time. Otherwise, it won't hold together. The film may suck, but at least you made it suck on your own. So for me, Dune was a huge failure. I knew I was getting into trouble when I agreed not to have Final Cut. I was hoping it would work out, but it didn't. The end result is not what I wanted, and that's a sadness. Here's the thing, though. When you meditate and bliss starts coming up inside, it is not as painful. You can ride through things like this and live through it, but it has killed a lot of people. It has made them not want to make a film again. to a psychiatrist once. I was doing something that had become a pattern in my life and I thought, well, I should go talk to a psychiatrist. When I got into the room, I asked him, do you think that this process could in any way damage my creativity? And he said, well, David, I have to be honest, it could. And I shook his hand and left. ever gotten ideas from dreams. I get more ideas from music or just walking around. On Blue Velvet, though, I was struggling with the script. I wrote four different drafts, and I had some problems with it near the end. Then one day, I was in an office, and I was supposed to go in and meet somebody in the next office. A secretary was there, and I asked her if I could have a piece of paper, because I suddenly remembered that the night before I had this dream. And there it was. There were three little elements that solved those problems. That's the only time that's happened.
Angelo Badalamenti. I met Angelo Badalamenti on Blue Velvet, and since then he has composed music for all my films. He's like my brother. The way we work is, I like to sit next to him on the piano bench. I talk, and Angelo plays. He plays my words, but sometimes he doesn't understand my words, so he plays very badly. Then I say, "No, no, 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 Angelo," and I change my words a little bit, and he plays differently. And then I say, "No, no, no, Angelo," and I change my words. And somehow through this process, he will catch something, and I'll say, "That's it." And then he starts going with his magic down that correct path. It's so much fun. If Angelo lived next door to me, I'd like to do this every day. But he lives in New Jersey, and I live in Los Angeles. Doesn't matter how wonderful an actor is, when you're casting, you have to pick the person who marries to that part, who can do that part. I don't ever give actors cold readings. I feel that's a torment for them, and I don't learn anything. Plus, then I would want to start rehearsing with them. It would take a long, long time to do that with every actor. So I just like to talk with them and look at them while they talk. I start running them through the script in my head as they're talking. Some of them go part way and then stop. Then one of them will go all the way through, and I'll know. On Blue Velvet, I worked with the casting director Joanna Ray, and we had all brought up Dennis Hopper. But everybody said, "No, no, you can't work with Dennis. He's really in bad shape, and you'll have nothing but trouble." So we continued looking for people. But one day, Dennis's agent called, and he said that Dennis was clean and sober, and had already done another picture. And I could talk to that director to verify it. Then Dennis called and said, "I have to play Frank because I am Frank." That thrilled me and scared me. Sometimes I'll have somebody in mind from the beginning. There's a character in Mulholland Drive that worked that way. It was about 7:30 in the evening, and I was dictating to my assistant, this beautiful woman. And I started talking in a funny way. I started talking like the cowboy in Mulholland Drive. He just came walking out. I realized after I'd gone on for a while that my friend Monty Montgomery would be perfect for that, and he's not even an actor, though he is an actor really. He's a very great actor, but he married to that part. There are some actors I return to, Kyle MacLachlan, for instance. I like Kyle, and maybe he's a kind of alter ego, but the rule of thumb, obviously, is to get the right person for that role, and that's what you go for. So the thing is, even though Kyle is my friend, if he's not right for the part, unfortunately, he doesn't get that part. What's also really interesting is that when you work with somebody, you pick that person for a particular role, but then during lunch or something, you see another side of that person, and you remember that. So if there's another role that comes up, and somebody says, "Well, Kyle couldn't do that," you may remember this side of him and say, "Yes, he could."
A candy-colored clown they call the Sandman Tiptoes to my room every night Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is all right I close my eyes Then I drift away WVA Eugene. This is the Reverend Mark Time and the Sunday morning hangover. Two hours today of the music, words, and soundtracks of David Lynch. We have gone through the late 70s through the 80s with David Lynch. 1990, David Lynch appears on ABC TV with Twin Peaks. This is the theme for Twin Peaks. We're going to be spending the next part of the show on the Twin Peaks phenomena. 
continuing story. I love going into another world and I love mysteries, so I don't really like to know very much ahead of time. I like the feeling of discovery. I think that's one of the great things about a continuing story, that you can go in and go deeper and deeper and deeper. You begin to feel the mystery and things start coming. The popularity of continuing stories on TV goes in waves. Periodically, the networks do these polls and they come up with different things. At one time, they had determined that people don't watch every single week. People may watch two times a month, and so the reasoning went. They lose their way in a continuing story and drop away from the show. Obviously, the networks don't want people to drop away, so for a certain period of time, they soured on a continuing story and wanted closed endings. I don't know quite how the network decided to let Twin Peaks become a pilot, but just because they let something become a pilot, it doesn't mean they're going to make it into a series. So it got that far, and even then they didn't really know what to do with it. They send these things to a place, I think it's in Philadelphia, and they have people watch the shows and grade them. Somehow it got a fairly good score, but not spectacular. I don't know what happened between that time and the time it aired, but it just got a huge, huge share that opening night. So that was a very lucky thing. Testing, one, two, testing. Diane, it's 8 a.m., Seattle, Washington. As you have no doubt surmised by the clarity of this tape, I purchased a new Micromac pocket tape recorder, the big little recorder at Wally's Rent-to-Own, 1145 North Hilltop, where, as the sign says, a bargain is a bargain no matter what the cost. For $21.89 cash. I decided to pass on the rent-to-own option, Diane. Leasing may be the fast track to an appearance of affluence, but equity will keep you warm at night. I have no doubt that this new model will prove to be an extremely useful tool in the investigatory process, where the most fleeting insight can be lost if your hardware isn't as solid as you're thinking. I have two stops to make, Diane. Woe's House of Cloth, where I'm picking up a new black suit, upping my total to five, one for each day of the week, presuming I don't have to work weekends. Frequently not a safe assumption. $199.99, including alterations. Second stop, the regional bureau office to pick up some files. Although I have wrapped up the fiber sample procedures seminar I came here to conduct, it looks like I'll be heading east on a new case instead of back to Philadelphia. We'll fill you in on the details after I've been briefed. Diane, 9 a.m. Preparing to board flight 210. Commuter flight, 15-seater. Arriving in Spokane at 10.15 a.m. One meal, breakfast. Eggs, sausage, toast, jam, juice, and the usual coffee-scented hot water. What airlines do to coffee shouldn't happen to a dog. So I'm packing a hot thermos from the commissary. Case number is 11219er. You'll have a copy of the file on your desk by the time you receive this. Victim, 17-year-old white female, dead, bound, and wrapped in plastic. Cause of death, 
unknown. It says here she was the homecoming queen. Second victim discovered alive was found across the state line, which is why it's our business now. Suspects are in custody. We'll assess their value upon arrival. Diane, I understand the air is so clear out where I'm going that you can see across two states when it's not raining, which is most of the time. So I've packed a pair of the businessman's friend. Totes for the feet. I've been scanning active files for the region. Note possible correlation to a murder last year of one Teresa Banks in the southwest corner of the state. Had all the trappings of a serial killing, except for one, a second body. Maybe this is it. Lucy, Lucy, this is Pete Martell. Lucy, put Harry on the horn. Sheriff, it's Pete Martell up at the mill. Um, I'm going to transfer to the phone on the table by the red chair. The, the red chair against the wall at the little table with the lamp on it, the lamp that we moved from the corner. The black phone, not the brown phone. Morning, Pete. Harry. She's dead. Wrapped in plastic. Is this about Laura? I'm afraid it is. What? Tell me. Oh, my baby. No! Oh, no! Leland, we're ready to go with the contracts. Leland, what's wrong? My daughter's dead.
One summer day, I was at a laboratory called Consolidated Film Industries in Los Angeles. We were editing the pilot for Twin Peaks and had finished for the day. It was around 6.30 in the evening and we'd gone outside. There were cars in the parking lot. I leaned my hands on the roof of one car and it was very, very warm. Not hot, but nicely warm. I was leaning there and pssst, the red room appeared and the backward thing appeared and then some of the dialogue. So I had this idea, these fragments, and I fell in love with them. That's how it starts. The idea tells you to build this red room. So you think about it. Wait a minute, you say. The walls are red, but they're not hard walls. Then you think some more. They're curtains. And they're not opaque. They're translucent. Then you put these curtains there. But the floor, it needs something. And you go back to the idea, and there was something on the floor. It was all there. So you do this thing on the floor, and you start to remember the idea more. You try some things, and you make mistakes, but you rearrange, add other stuff, and then it feels the way the idea felt. to a very special Sunday morning hangover with Reverend Mark Time, the music of David Lynch. Right now we're into music and dialogue and excerpts from the show Twin Peaks, which ran a few seasons back around 1990 about the murder of a girl named Laura Palmer. Big shout out to Laura who called in. I think she said her uncle was the one-armed man. Also, a big shout-out to my friend Gary in Pasadena. I've got a very special song by James for you, Gary, after this song. Darkness. People have asked me why, if meditation is so great and gives you so much bliss, are my films so dark and there's so much violence? There are many, many dark things flowing around in this world now, and most films reflect the world in which we live. They're stories. Stories are always going to have conflict. They're going to have highs and lows and good and bad. I fall in love with certain ideas, and I am where I am. Now, if I told you I was enlightened, and this is enlightened filmmaking, that would be another story. But I'm just a guy from Missoula, Montana, doing my thing, going down the road like everybody else. We all reflect the world we live in. Even if you make a period film, it will reflect your times. You can see the way period films differ depending on when they were made. It's a sensibility, how they talk certain themes, and those things change as the world changes. And so, even though I'm from Missoula, Montana, which is not the surrealistic capital of the world, you could be anywhere and see a kind of strangeness in how the world is these days, or have a certain way of looking at things. Where are you? Come back here. 
expanded consciousness and bliss. It's a natural human desire, and a lot of people look for it in drugs. But the problem is that the body, the physiology, takes a hard hit on drugs. Drugs injure the nervous system, so they just make it harder to get those experiences on your own. I have smoked marijuana, but I no longer do. I went to art school in the 60s, so you can imagine what was going on. Yet my friends were the ones who said, no, 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 David, don't you take those drugs. I was pretty lucky. Besides, far more profound experiences are available naturally. When your consciousness starts expanding, those experiences are there. All those things can be seen. It's just a matter of expanding that ball of consciousness. And the ball of consciousness can expand to be infinite and unbounded. It's totality. You can have totality. So all those experiences are there for you without the side effects of drugs.
Another can give you the strength of a lion. But only one in the cycle of life can fill your heart with wonder and the wisdom that you have known a singular joy. Short stack of griddle cakes, melted butter, maple syrup, lightly heated slice of ham. Nothing beats the taste sensation when maple syrup collides with ham. But I am now under orders to examine these files, so if you'll excuse me, please. I, too, have been touched by the devilish one. There was a fish in the percolator. Industrial Symphony Number no. 1 Industrial Symphony Number no. 1 was the first and only time I've done a stage production. It was at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. We had two weeks to set it up, but only one day in the actual theater to put it all together and do two performances. I was working on the music with Angelo Badalamenti, and we were attempting some abstract musical things to tie different elements together. I had some people building sets. But from the time the sets went up, the whole thing had to be rehearsed and lit in one day. So the day came, and we had the late morning and afternoon to rehearse and then put on two shows. I wanted to start rehearsing from the beginning, to rehearse all the way through. We started, and about an hour and a half later, I'd hardly even got into the thing, even though it wasn't very long, and I realized that I was facing a gigantic, definite disaster. I thought, I'm never going to make it unless I get some kind of idea, and bingo, it happened. Maybe it's not reinventing the wheel, perhaps it's just common sense, but what I did was, I went one by one. I would grab this person and say, do you see that over there? When that man there goes there, and then leaves, then you go there. And he'd say, okay, and when you get there, you do this, this, and this. Okay. Then I'd go to the next person, I'd say, do you see that man there? When he does this, this, and this, then it's your cue to go over here, and you do that, that, and that. We never had a rehearsal, but fortunately, it all worked out.
Hi, this is Julie Cruz, and I'm talking to you. And I would like to share a story with you that was my favorite story when I was a little girl. It's called Pinky's Bubbling, and it goes something like this. KWVA, Eugene. In the faraway world of Pinky's bubble egg, things changed. listening to the Sunday Morning Hangover. We've just heard excerpts from Industrial Symphony by David Lynch, an on-stage production he did live in New York. We're currently listening to the music from Wild at Heart, a movie he did shortly after he started production on the TV show Twin Peaks. You may remember the Chris Isaac song that came out of that movie. I will not be playing that today. Two hours of the music, films, and words of David Lynch here on The Hangover. My name is David Lynch, and I would like to tell you how Pinky's Bubble Egg came into being. In a dark world just this side of our own, in the land of the shadows, a short, stocky, yet twisted-looking male gnome castrated a small fairy dog. The wheezing moan, actually the air of the wheezing moan, which issued forth from the dog's nostrils, contained a faint melody of Pinky's Bubble Egg. Now, this particular world, being very near and yet very far, has absolutely no connection to our present lives. So sometime in the distant future, 
when things have changed, some amber was dripping from a tree. Time passed, and geologists from a university found it as a prehistoric, petrified example worth keeping. And by accident, or at least for no expressed purpose, a rosin bow was pulled across this string of petrified amber, and the melody sounded forth once again, this time not from the realm of dreams, but in what we call reality, which we all know is a joke. Thank you. 
We'll be back to the music of David Lynch after these.